Hello and welcome to Grapevine. This is volume 41, number 11, for week ending Friday the 19th of March 2021. Brought to you by the Great Jarmuthan District Talking Newspaper Association, this week's news includes the presently inevitable Covid roundup, how Hemsby is getting ready for the highly anticipated holidaymakers, news from our local college, and anyone want a phone box? Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me is Andrew, your newsreader for the week, who also has a mini-quiz from a 1970s Kelly's Directory. Off we go then with the first part of the news. Hello again everyone, it's Andrew here. Welcome to another edition of Grapevine, with more news and views from where you live. A quarter of adults under the age of 55 in Norfolk and Waveney have already had their first coronavirus vaccine now, new data has revealed. Latest figures published by NHS England show 117,821 people aged between 16 and 54 had received an initial jab by March 14th. So that's 25.6% of the under 55 population, the second highest proportion in the country for that particular age bracket. Norfolk and Waveney is still moving at a promising pace overall, with exactly 457,000 people having been administered injections so far. And at 53.6%, that's the fifth highest rate in the country, rising one price on the list compared to last week. Leading the charge for Norfolk when it comes to specific neighbourhoods is Hunstanton, where 69.3% of patients have attended their first appointments. And broken down by local authority, North Norfolk is top of the pile on 57.6%. During the latest seven-day period, a total of 37,561 first doses were given in our area, denoting a slight increase on last week, but Norfolk's second lowest weekly total to date. A low of 35,253 was announced last Thursday, a decline of 22%, which health bosses put down to vaccine supply. Norfolk and Waveney CCG, which has been leading the rollout, said availability was, quote, expected to increase significantly, but there are now fresh concerns after NHS England warned local health organisations of a significant reduction in the supply of jabs in April. It is understood a delay in the arrival of 5 million Oxford AstraZeneca doses from India is partially to blame, which has featured in the news over the last day or so, of course. As the programme continues, an increasing number of patients are beginning to receive second doses of the vaccine, which must be administered within 12 weeks of the first. In Norfolk and Waveney, 15,984 over 80s have had additional shots, which is 22.3% of the age group's population. Percentage-wise, that places the area's health system in 14 out of more than 40 across the country. Now, all COVID contact tracing in Norfolk will soon be overseen by the County Council after a successful bid to take on work which has been done by NHS test and trace workers up to now. Norfolk County Council has been picked to pilot in the local O scheme. That will mean as soon as someone tests positive for coronavirus, local rather than national workers, will have the job of tracing their contacts and telling them they need to self-isolate. 
Up to now, the council had only been passed cases from the National NHS Test and Trace Task Force after that team had been unable to make contact over a period of 24 hours. But the success of local Norfolk teams in tracing contacts, including knocking on doors to get people to self-isolate, meant that it had an 89% success rate by November. And the government has said County Hall can now oversee the entire contact tracing system in the county. Dr Louise Smith, Norfolk's Director of Public Health, said it is vital that we all continue to do our part in stopping the spread of coronavirus and bring the rate of transmission down in Norfolk. I'm delighted we have this opportunity to further reduce the spread of the virus in Norfolk. In addition to our strong contact tracing approach, we also have good support in place locally to help people self-isolate. Andrew Proctor, Norfolk County Council leader, said our inclusion in the local O pilot scheme will further enhance our ability to trace potential contacts of positive cases successfully, but also more quickly than previously. Contact tracing is a key element in being able to slow and stop the spread of coronavirus, allowing us to limit community spread that may otherwise go unnoticed, and this pilot scheme will help us to do this even more quickly and effectively. To handle the anticipated increase in cases the team will handle, 12 extra contact tracers have been recruited to Norfolk County Council local team, in addition to the local teams in each of the district, borough and city councils. Now, more than 4,000 people have taken part in rapid testing for coronavirus in Norfolk, with public health bosses saying it is helping stem the spread of the virus. The testing for people who do not have symptoms has, so far, identified 33 who had COVID-19. Health bosses say the asymptomatic testing means people who test positive can self-isolate straight away so they do not pass on the virus to others. Earlier this month, Dr Louise Smith urged people having to go out to work or to visit loved ones in care homes to get twice-weekly COVID tests. That plea came as more sites where people could get a lateral test result in about 30 minutes were being rolled out. And mobile testing sites are running in Norwich, Sprouston, Kings Lynn, Great Yarmouth, Watton, Heatherset and Porringland. The County Council says there have been 33 positive tests from a total of 4,117 lateral flow tests. A spokesperson said, that's why this type of testing is so valuable. We're finding cases we wouldn't otherwise have picked up and been able to advise those individuals to self-isolate, helping to stop further transmission of the virus. Diane Steiner, Deputy Director of Public Health, said, We've been very pleased with the public's response to the community symptom-free testing programme so far, and would encourage residents to take part as we continue to develop and roll out this programme. And tests can be booked via www.norfolk.gov.uk. People who have symptoms of coronavirus should not book tests in that way, but should go through to www.gov.uk forward slash get hyphen coronavirus hyphen test. And more than 200 businesses covering around 7,000 staff have started doing regular testing, while a further 300 businesses have expressed interest in the scheme. A plaque dedicated to a girl who took her own life will be unveiled on a bench on the coast with her mother hoping the memorial will prompt discussions on child suicide. Leanne Collins, 36, lives in Hopton with her husband and two children, but lost her daughter Jessica, aged just 14, in 2016. 
She said that three people have generously donated £230 towards the plaque that will bear her daughter's name and be fixed to a bench overlooking the pond on Goulston's seafront. The spot was chosen because three days after Jessica's death a crowd gathered there to release pink and red balloons with loving messages attached. The memorial bench is also part of Miss Collins' campaign, the Jessica Collins Child Suicide Awareness page. She said, Our idea is to have a hashtag on the plaque so people can go there and take pictures and upload them to our campaign's Facebook page. It will mean a lot, she added. It will mean the people who can't see Jessica anymore will have a special place to go to remember her or other people they have lost. Jessica was found unresponsive on her bed in July 2016. Norfolk Coroner Yvonne Blake said the trigger involved a text message which Jessica feared had ended a friendship. Miss Collins is also organising a raffle to take place next month with funds donated to Papyrus, a UK charity for the prevention of young suicide. Among the 60-odd prizes will be chocolates, driving lessons, cupcakes, free meals, beauty vouchers, makeup, a character visit for children, personal training lessons via Zoom and a personalised wedding seating plan. Miss Collins will be selling raffle tickets online and the draw will take place on April the 24th on her Facebook and Instagram pages. I want to raise as much as I can and I'm putting my all into this, she said. Communities across Great Yarmouth and Waveney have been urged to join a support scheme encouraging open conversations about bereavement. St Elizabeth Hospice has announced their involvement with the Compassionate Communities Project, a national approach aimed at equipping the public to support each other during some of the most difficult times in their lives. Joe Bidmead, Project Coordinator for Norfolk and Waveney, said, From working in the community for over 25 years, I have learned community strength comes from people joining together, where all members of the community feel connected and able to care and support each other, particularly in times of crisis and loss. A compassionate community enables people to feel they are valuable members at whatever stage of life. As part of the scheme, the hospice website will include free bereavement training programmes, online social groups and guidance for the public on how to work alongside the hospice to establish their own compassionate communities. The scheme is open to schools, businesses, community groups and individuals, with the Pear Tree Centre in Halesworth, one local organisation, already involved. A care home where a resident died after being neglected by staff has been put into special measures following alerts from two whistleblowers. Sapphire House in Bradwell was rated as requires improvement in April 2019, but has now been placed in the worst possible category following the unannounced inspection by the Care Quality Commission. A spokesman for the home said they were disappointed but confident that improvements were, quote, well underway. Regimes at the home came under scrutiny in 2019 when an inquest heard how staff had neglected type 1 diabetic James Delaney, aged 37, who died in his room having not taken his insulin for three days. At the time, Senior Coroner Jacqueline Lake said she was confident the care home had made the much-needed changes of culture following Mr Delaney's death and accepted many members of staff had a good relationship with him. The changes, including staff being given ring-fenced time to read and understand patients' care plans and documents. However, a report published on March the 11th revealed some things had got worse since the last visit in January 2019 when it was found to be in breach of four regulations. Watchdogs who visited on January the 26th of this year 
found a range of concerns at the setting in Long Lane, home to five people with learning disability or autism spectrum disorder. The inspection team said the setting was unsafe because of issues to do with risk assessments, staffing and COVID infection control, although the home had been virus free. And while there was positive feedback for the new management team and staff were seen supporting residents positively, there were problems with the culture, ethos, attitude and practice. Acting on the whistleblower's concerns, the inspection team looked at the issues of safety and leadership, finding them both inadequate. There were also concerns about staffing, with rotors showing some staff had worked a 12-hour night shift, followed by a day shift, which was unsafe. In terms of infection control, the inspector was not screened for COVID-19 symptoms on arrival. Generally, the home was not clean, with heavy dust and PPE thrown away in open bins, thus increasing the risk of transmission. The report added that allegations about abusive practices were made by the whistleblowers and were being investigated by the local authority. On the issue of being well-led, the report said leaders and the culture they created did not ensure the delivery of high-quality care. Elsewhere, it said lessons had not been fully learned from previous breaches. Relatives spoken to by inspectors, however, spoke highly of management, saying they went the extra mile. The Home has been asked to draw up an action plan, and external agencies are said to have confidence in the new manager being able to make improvements. Being in special measures means the care home will be inspected within six months to check for significant improvements. If none are made, the CQC will take enforcement action. Police are appealing for information after two vans were targeted by criminals in Great Yarmouth on the same night. On Saturday, March the 6th at 9.25pm, a white van parked on Lancaster Road had its window smashed and two toolboxes were taken. Around the same time, between 9 and 10, another van parked in Deanside also had its window smashed. A man in his 50s has been arrested in connection with the incidents and released on police bail while inquiries continue. Officers believe the incidents are linked and would like to hear from anyone who may have information or CCTV footage from the area at the time. Those with information are asked to contact PC Stephanie Dashwood at Galston Police Station on 101, quoting crime number 36 slash 14451 slash 21. Now here's an interesting article from Stuart Rimmer. Stuart Rimmer is the Chief Executive and Principal of East Coast College in Lowestoft and Great Yarmouth and he looks back at the year of the pandemic and how it's affected the college. March the 20th marks one year since our college community went online in the first national lockdown brought about by the coronavirus pandemic. It was without a doubt the saddest day of my leadership career. Watching staff walking out loading boxes of work and pot plants into their cars, pipping horns as they left and seeing the college gates close really brought a rare tear to my eye. But colleges are far more than buildings. Colleges are built from connections between people. Last March, we stepped into the greatest leadership challenge for a generation, combined with transferring a whole institution to working from home with little notice and simultaneously the largest pedagogical which actually means teaching, experiment, since the Victorian era. This created a pressure and fast change. So what have we learned since then, and what can we look back on with pride? 
there are certainly plenty of headlines that would have us believe online education in some form is here to stay. And while that may be so, there are still barriers to completely replicating our curriculum online. Lockdown learning has also had a negative impact on the mental health of some staff and students. So any move towards greater online learning will need to be handled carefully. In the absence of hard evidence that online learning is beneficial, and my own experiences to the contrary, I feel that the current rush to digital teaching and learning approaches are mostly distractive. There has been a very rapid obsession with digital as a panacea and proxy for good teaching and learning, and I don't think there's evidence to suggest that's true. We are working in this way because of necessity and not desirability. At East Coast College, it's about which aspects of online learning we keep when we go back to normal. And the answer is we will augment and not replace face to face. People say there are big rewards and that tech can make lessons more interesting and accessible. But there are too many big ticket items in the way, chiefly digital poverty. You can only participate in the digital world if you're rich enough. No matter how good the teacher and how accomplished their digital delivery or how good the digital platform, if someone is trying to learn on a mobile phone, it's hard and many in our region in rural and coastal communities can't afford decent broadband or data packages. At our college, around 15% of 16 to 19 year olds receive free school meals and they don't typically have a device in their home or if there is one, it's shared by three siblings and their parents on a poor broadband connection. To help, we've delivered 700 laptops to students and stretched college finances in doing so. In my view, digital poverty needs tackling before any push for digital curriculum transformation across the sector, even after we return to normal. Another thing we can't ignore is that many further education courses are practical. Exclusive digital learning cannot produce good bricklayers, plumbers, hairdressers or chefs. These disciplines are grounded in high technical skills and craft. Our staff have been amazingly innovative and creative, but can't wait to get back to face-to-face -face teaching in our on-site workshops, salons and kitchens. Over the last two weeks, as we have returned to campus, the joy of staff and students coming together to learn has been both visceral and created a refreshed dynamism. This will continue into the summer term. As a college, we can be incredibly proud of the way we have responded during such uncertain times. Staff have gone out of their way to research and deliver sessions using technology they had never heard of a year ago, and they've continued to inspire and support our students with their learning and progression, as well as sharing best practices with their colleagues to ensure the best delivery college-wise. Our students have been just as amazing, and during this time of challenge, have even found the time to think of others in our community. In the past 12 months, our college has raised £2,000 and donated over 600 items to the Lowestoft and Great Yarmouth food banks. Students have created and sent wellbeing packs and postcards to local care homes. They've made scrubs for NHS workers, filled Christmas stockings with goodies, baked bread, cakes and pasta dishes to send to the less fortunate. So yes, it has been challenging, and I'm sure there will be more challenges to come as our country looks to return to normal. But the achievements of our students, dedication of our staff and strength of our college community has shone through it all. And I don't think I could be more proud. That really is an excellent letter, isn't it? 
Better train links between Norwich and Cambridge, including half-hourly services and opening new railway stations, are crucial to stop rural and coastal communities being left behind, MPs have said. Fifteen Norfolk and Suffolk Conservative MPs have written to Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, urging him to prioritise East Anglian links to and from Cambridge as part of the government's levelling up agenda. In the letter, MPs bemoan the appalling links between Norwich, Ipswich and Cambridge, which they say stopped East Anglia fulfilling its economic potential and left rural and coastal communities behind. They said the regional lines had been neglected for too long and that trains were key to getting people off the roads, particularly given the hundreds of thousands of new homes which will be built in the region in the decades ahead. They said better connected rail services from Norwich and Ipswich to Cambridge and all the stations and stops in between were, quote, by far the quickest way to achieve the levelling up. The MPs said that the 52 railway stations across East Anglia were neglected and or abandoned, but should be being transformed and turned into growth hubs of regeneration. They said that could even pave the way for new stations to be opened in due course. Their letter states, Norwich and Cambridge are both world-leading and rapidly growing innovation hubs that are key to unlocking and levelling up the vast economic potential of East Anglia. Little more than 50 miles apart, the infrastructure connecting them is poor in comparison to other regions across the United Kingdom, meaning it takes far too long to travel between the two, with the services currently on offer, slow, infrequent and running on old lines that have seen little investment from network rail for decades. The MPs said that, having spoken to Greater Anglia, the rail company viewed half-hourly services between Norwich and Cambridge and Ipswich and Cambridge as a key aspiration for the next franchise period. Key issues holding back speedier services in Norfolk are the Ely North Junction and the Trouse Swing Bridge. The East Norwich development, which would see new homes built on the former Coleman's factory site, the Deal Ground and the Utilities Ground, hinges on changes being made to the railway bridge at Trouse. That, leaders said, was an opportunity to make that bridge double track, which would speed up services. And the letter to Mr Shapps from MPs states, Vitally important improvement projects like Ely North Junction, Trouse Bridge and Hawley Junction will naturally play a significant role in making all this possible. The Ely North Junction upgrades would open the possibility of an additional service, which really should be looked at in the context of Cambridge to Norwich and Cambridge to Ipswich, as opposed to Cambridge to Peterborough. The MPs called for a meeting with Mr Shapps, department officials and representatives from Network Rail and Greater Anglia. George Freeman, MP for Mid-Norfolk, said, Half-hourly services between Norwich to Cambridge and Ipswich to Cambridge would be major steps forward as we look to unlock growth to build back better and get East Anglia well and truly on the road to net zero carbon. We passionately believe that by connecting our golden triangle of growth, the East can be at the forefront of the Green Revolution, generating jobs, prosperity and net zero progress that will make all of our lives better. A Greater Anglia spokesperson said, We share the aspiration to run more frequent services between Norwich and Cambridge and between Ipswich and Cambridge. However, these changes will require investment in significant infrastructure upgrades and then further additional investment in the operation of the additional services. 
we will continue to work with partners and wider stakeholders to help build the business case for these improvements. We're already working closely with Network Rail to transform the railway in East Anglia and further improve journeys for passengers. The new trains we've introduced on the routes from both Norwich and Ipswich to Cambridge are longer, more comfortable, more environmentally friendly and helping to deliver a more punctual service. More news in a nonce, but first, Andrew wants to stretch your collective memories on some local hotspots. Now, as you know on Grapevine, from time to time we like to go back a few years to remind you of times past in Yarmouth. Well, I have in front of me a Kelly Street directory, which was a kind of Google map in paper form. Uh, these, these were quite commonplace in the 60s, 70s and 80s, and they were a, quite a thick bound book that gave us street-by-street street listings of residents and businesses in UK towns. This one is from 1972, and actually it cost £2, which I suppose wasn't cheap really in those days. But I thought I'd just pose you a few quick questions about some notable Yarmouth places. I'm going to give you the location, and I'm going to leave you to guess the name. There'll be a few cryptic clues as we go on, so uh, try and listen carefully. First one. On Regent Road at number 66... Now, this was a very famous meeting place with a distinctly continental flavour. You could even say Winston Churchill gave them their logo. It's number 66, Regent Road. Secondly, over the bridge to Southtown Road. Now, number 32, you'd find a very big B&B. But these people weren't in hospitality. However, they were, and indeed still are, very bright sparks. Still carrying on on the Galston side, we're going through the High Street now, up to number 68, Lowestoft Road. Many lads and lasses would scoot along to meet there in the 60s and for many years after. This place had all the mod cons. We come back over the bridge now, back into Yarmouth. Question number four. Number 25, King Street. In the days when music came on those good old black flat discs. Remember those? This is where we could try before we buy. Not on headphones though, but in the booth. And finally, number nine, Marine Parade, Great Yarmouth. Now, this building's not in Holland, but many stars shone here through the years. That's number nine, Marine Parade. No prizes for this, I'm afraid just for a bit of fun, and Graham will give you the answers at the end of the programme. And now, from Norwich, it's the Quiz of the Week. week our star prizes include a dining suite, a television and music centre, a pair of watches in gold quartz, 
the two-door family car. And a selection of bicycles. But let's start with this reproduction Capelwhite-style dining suite in solid mahogany. It's made up of a dining table plus four chairs and two carvers. And the antique price is £120. Thanks, Andrew. Answers at the end. And as a little addition... I'm sure that you remember the name of the quiz show that began with what we just played. You do, don't you? OK, time for the rest of this week's news. On a drizzly morning in an empty car park, it's hard to imagine the tourist honeypot of Hemsby buzzing with visitors. But it's not the first time Greg Munford has taken a leap of faith in the resort he is proud to champion. People who have not visited for, for a while will see the changes under the Richardson's banner with a £1.3 million investment taking shape at the company's Hemsby Beach Holiday Park in Beach Road and around the wider village. Most obvious is the new 200-space car park, replacing a row of shops and the rebranding of the Caesars Amusement Arcade. Other improvements include the creation of a new plaza, which will have Gabion-style seating shaded by giant umbrellas. Also in the pipeline are an indoor bowling alley and climbing wall, which will be open to the public. It follows a £10 million transformation at the former Seacroft Holiday Park, bringing in a family activity holiday offer similar to Centre Parks. And now Mr Munford wants to roll out the red carpet for everyone who wants to visit Hemsby. He said, There's a perception of Hemsby in some people's minds based on how Richardson's used to operate as an older Pontin-style park that was bringing coachloads of people to 1960s chalets. Now what we're trying to do is change our product model and it opens up Hemsby for everyone. Initially, the car park will be free to use. Charges will likely be introduced in May, probably with free parking with a purchase from Richardson's Yacht Club restaurant and bar. Meanwhile, the holiday park's evolution continues, with more luxury lodges with hot tubs and a new concierge owner's brand, bringing a raft of benefits for those who buy a lodge. Key to the new owner's model is a well-being space being proposed for the 1930s Trelawne bungalow built by the original owners. Led by Laura Richardson, the focus on mindfulness will feature a range of treatments and therapies and a yoga yurt. The brand's mantra, helping to make the most of now, aims to chime with how people feel as lockdown ends. Mr Mumford said bookings had been very strong, with a surge in interest every time the Prime Minister made an announcement. On the Stalham-based boat hire side, he said the summer is already 80% booked. Overall, it was a shift in quality that was paying dividends as tourism in the UK became fashionable again, he said. It wasn't just short breaks, with people now opting to spend a week or more away and the shoulder weeks either side. We want everyone in Hemsby to thrive, he added. The last thing we would want would be for it to lose its individuality and the traders in Hemsby have given us nothing but support. Cafe owner and borough councillor James Bensley said, People expect a lot more and want the opportunity to go that bit further up market. We have every budget covered and that is the essence of a wonderful seaside resort. We're looking forward to welcoming visitors with open arms. The whole entrance to Beach Road looks another level now. These are really exciting times. Well, that's good news, isn't it? And let's hope we get that wonderful sunshine to go with it. Now a tale of a... Spaghetti Western, as it's been labelled here. A scaffolder hung sheeting in front of windows to block residents' views as part of a Spaghetti Western standoff with landlords over an alleged £4,600 unpaid bill. 
One of the tenants of the apartments in Great Yarmouth said they could, quote, hardly blame Michael Black for resorting to drastic action after he'd said he'd waited five months to be paid for putting up scaffolding last October. Mr Black from Yarmouth, who owns KB Scaffolding, said the saga which unfolded at the block of flats on Sandown Road was entirely avoidable. The dispute centred around a payment allegedly owed by the building's landlords, Dr Safana Rasul and Akila Ahmed, to KB Scaffolding over the emergency scaffolding. After five months of his invoice going unpaid, Mr Black and his team, for whom a loss of 4,600 was, quote, a huge kick in the teeth, re-erected the scaffolding and hung up sheets to block residents' windows. Both landlords have been contacted by the Yarmouth Mercury and have declined to comment. The scaffolding went up on Friday, March the 12th and was removed after Mr Black received payment on Tuesday afternoon of March the 16th. According to one tenant who first contacted the newspaper last Friday, residents, quote, do not blame KBS for the debacle. He said, when we saw them putting up scaffolding, we did panic a little. We were told by the letting agent the night before there was a chance that the scaffolders would block us in entirely and we might not be able to get out. Turns out it was nowhere near that extreme, but residents on the first floor still couldn't see out of their windows for five days. He went on, I don't blame the scaffolders, they wanted their payment. A few people were stressed out by the situation, but most of us totally understood why they were doing it. Mr Black said, When they finally paid me, they said I had to withdraw any involvement with the press. It turned into a spaghetti western, and it's awful for the residents who got caught in the crossfire. But we had no choice, and the whole thing was entirely avoidable. Now, we all love our iconic red phone boxes, and BT has revealed that 90 of them across Norfolk and Waveney are up for grabs, and it urges local communities to take advantage of a scheme to help transform them for the 21st century. Since 2008, a total of 907 phone boxes across the east of England have been taken on by communities for just £1 each through BT's Adopt-a-Kiosk programme. Redundant phone boxes, once a lifeline of communication before the arrival of mobile phone networks, have been transformed into everything from community larders to art galleries and swap shops. BT will also consider adoption requests to house defibrillators in modern glass phone boxes, which is a potentially life-saving conversion. John Pollock, BT Enterprise Unit Director for the East of England, said, With most people now using mobile phones, it's led to a huge drop in the number of calls made from payphones. We're currently rationalising our payphone estate to make it fit for the future, and the Adopt-a-Kiosk scheme makes it possible for local communities in the East of England to retain their local phone box with a refreshed purpose for the community. Plenty of creative East Anglians have already found brilliant uses for the world-famous boxes, And during the first lockdown, a kiosk opposite St Andrew's Church in Blickling was repurposed into a community larder, while Poor England Parish Council set out plans to use one as a defibrillator storage. In 2018, Renningham transformed their box into a village swap box. And in 2017, North Runcton turned one into what may be Norfolk's smallest art gallery. As many as 30 kiosks are available in North Norfolk, 21 in Kingsland and West Norfolk, 11 in Breckland, 10 in South Norfolk, 8 in Broadland, 5 in Waveney, 4 in Norwich, and guess, just one box up for grabs in Great Yarmouth. Now, has anybody got any ideas where that is? 
Communities can adopt a kiosk if they are a recognised public body such as a parish council, community council or town council. And boxes can also be adopted by registered charities or individuals who have a payphone on their land. BT will very kindly continue to provide electricity, if it's already in place, to power the light for adoptive phone boxes free of charge. So if anybody's interested, you can uh, get further details on this by visiting www.bt.com forward slash adopt. That's a really good idea. While we're still on kiosks, a kiosk of a different kind. A newsagent's kiosk bid to sell alcohol has been approved, despite concerns it will encourage undesirable street drinkers and prevent families from enjoying the seafront. Great Yarmouth's sub-licensing committee gave the go-ahead on Tuesday for Pieter Doda, owner of the Times newsagent's kiosk on Marine Parade, to sell alcohol between 8am and 11pm from Easter to the end of October. Objections had been raised by Great Yarmouth Borough Councillor Tony Wright, as well as the owner of nearby family-run amusement park Joyland. Both shared fears over street drinking and an increase in antisocial behaviour and the potential reputational damage to an area visited by many families in the summer months. Speaking on behalf of the applicant, June Clark said it was not for her client to control other people's behaviour. She said people might well buy alcohol from the newsagents and sit on benches and drink it. But police can confiscate alcohol from anyone who is drinking and engaging in antisocial behaviour. She added, alcohol itself is, quote, not a dangerous product, but it is the drinker who is dangerous. If the drinker wants to be a danger to themselves and others, that is their responsibility, she said. Miss Clark said that Mr Doda has sold other age-restricted products for five years without incident and that the only change being proposed is the installation of a small alcohol fridge behind the counter, which would be operated by an employee at all times. Councillor Wright, however, said he was sick of constantly seeing empty beer bottles and cider cans along the seafront. I do understand this is a police issue, he said, but as a councillor covering this particular area, I have already enough issues to deal with, and I see prevention as better than a cure. Michael Cole, speaking on behalf of Joyland, said he did not want undesirables giving tourists a bad impression of Yarmouth's Golden Mile. He added that police were stretched as it is, and this would give them more work and more of a headache. But after deliberation among committee councillors, Chair Graham Plant informed Mr Doda his application had been successful. He said no responsible authorities had objected and the behaviour of the public was not the responsibility of the licence holder. Staying on a police theme, police pulled over a long vehicle in Great Yarmouth and it was prevented from continuing its journey until multiple problems were corrected. In a tweet, Norfolk and Suffolk Roads and Armed Policing Team said they stopped the 120-tonne, 26-metre vehicle as part of its commercial enforcement operation on the Acle Strait. An inspection revealed the driver was not adhering to the load movement order and had neglected a previous rest period. The tweet added, Vehicle is staying put until issues corrected. Spokesman for Norfolk Police added that the vehicle was stopped at around 3pm on Tuesday, March 16th as part of the MPCC commercial vehicle campaign on the Acle Strait by the Roads and Armed Policing Team and the Roads Casualty Reduction Team, as the vehicle was heading into Great Yarmouth. The vehicle was actually a large crane, which was stated on the movement request to be 26 metres in total length, with a gross weight of 120 tonnes. 
The vehicle was allowed to be moved under strict conditions which included a self-escort vehicle which was not being adhered to. Therefore the vehicle was prevented from continuing its journey until the necessary actions or a new movement order had been requested. The latter was subsequently completed and its journey was completed under police escort. The driver was reported for offences relating to the vehicle's size and was given a verbal warning regarding a minor historic infringement regarding driver's hours. And the spokesman added officers would be speaking to the movement company. I wonder where they parked that when all this was going on. As the spotlight remains on the issue of women's personal safety, a 21-year-old has revealed disturbing doorbell footage of a stranger staring into her home on four separate occasions. The great Yarmouth woman, who does not want to be named, said after sharing the footage on Facebook, she received messages from other women recounting the same experience, some of whom chose not to contact police because they believed nothing could be done. The woman who captured the footage said, I decided to check my doorbell camera the other day and saw this man had been staring into my house when I'd been sat watching TV. I can tell from the angle that he was looking directly at me. He came back three times in one evening and was standing there for quite a while each time. I'd been completely oblivious and have absolutely no idea who he is. I then checked footage from the rest of the month and found he'd been at my house before, on March the 2nd. He didn't try the door handle or anything, but that's what makes it all so unsettling. I can't even distinguish any obvious motive. At a time when everyone is talking about women's safety on the streets, it seems from instances like this that we should also be talking about women having to be vigilant in their own homes. Police confirmed officers were called just before 10.10pm on Friday, March the 12th to reports that a man was acting suspiciously in the woman's garden. After speaking to the occupant, police said no offences had been identified. Jade Martin, councillor for Central and Northgate Ward, said it was frustrating police hands were often tied until somebody had actually committed a crime and that criminal justice needed to get tougher in clamping down on intimidating behaviour. She said it's unsettling to see an increase in incidents like this being reported and shared. The safety of women has always been a concern, but now more than ever we need to ensure they are protected and empowered to speak out for help. People are feeling unsafe outside and inside their homes, and this is not right. Fellow ward councillor Mike Smith-Clare agreed. He said nobody should be made to feel unsafe and vulnerable, let alone in their own home. At a time when women are rightly expressing how unsafe they feel, it's up to all of us to do everything we can to change this. The partner of a young woman who died from cancer has donated iPads to the hospital that was treating her so other patients can communicate with their loved ones during the pandemic. The generous donation to Beckles Hospital comes after nursery nurse Rhiannon Staff died in December, aged just 28. She was on Minsmere Ward for six weeks, receiving care from the specialist palliative care team, a partnership between Lowestoft-based East Coast Community Healthcare and St Elizabeth Hospice. Rhiannon's partner of 10 years, Kyle Beals from Bradwell, said, It was something I knew I had to do because of what they did for us. It was quite lucky that I was able to be with Rhiannon at the hospital. It was valuable time that we got to spend together, time other families haven't been able to have because of the COVID-19 restrictions, which is why I decided to donate the iPads. Miss Staff had been diagnosed with cervical cancer in August 2016, aged 24. Mr Beals, who's 29, said, Our whole world flips upside down, but we managed to live life to the full for four years after her diagnosis. 
and Rhiannon was fantastic at making good out of a bad situation. What Rhiannon taught me over those four years of illness will be with me forever. If you can get out of bed in the morning, make the most of the day. Mr Beals presented Minsmere Ward at the hospital with six iPads, one for each of the specialist palliative care beds at the hospital, with each one engraved in the memory of Rhiannon. He said there are a couple of members of staff who I will be eternally grateful to. They really helped Rhiannon through her hardest times and I've stayed in contact with them. They came to her funeral. It's amazing the impact they had on our lives in such a short time. Mr Beals has also had a tree with a plaque commemorating Rhiannon's life planted at Gunton Woodland Burial Park in Lowestoft. Adele Martin, Director of Operations for ECCH, said... We are so grateful to Carl for this very generous tribute to Rhiannon. Covid visiting restrictions have been very hard on patients and their loved ones and we have done our very best to support people to be together and to use technology to stay in touch when they can't visit in person. Kelvin Bengston, Medical Director at St Elizabeth Hospice said this is a wonderful tribute to Rhiannon and we are very grateful and thankful to Carl for his generosity. Pupils asked to self-isolate returned to school two days later after it turned out their teacher's lateral flow test was a false positive. A spokesperson for Ormiston Herman Academy in Galston said that its Year 2 class were moved back to remote learning on the Wednesday and Thursday of last week as a precautionary measure after a staff member tested positive for COVID-19 through lateral flow testing. They said, in line with government guidance that staff members then took a PCR test the results of which came back negative. This meant pupils returned to the academy on Friday, March the 12th, after two days of self-isolation. According to the Department of Education guidance, if a pupil, staff member or member of their household gets a positive result from a home lateral flow test, they should report the result and arrange for a PCR test. In the event that the PCR test is negative, the result overrides that of the lateral flow test and allows those self-isolating to return to school. Carrying on with the COVID theme, everyone in Norfolk and Waveney aged 50 and over is being invited to book their coronavirus vaccination. All those aged 50 to 54 across England have been encouraged to organise appointments via the NHS website. The age bracket is the final group on the government's vaccine priority list, as recommended by the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, that's the JCVI. Those nine cohorts cover 99% of those considered to be at high risk of dying in the event of contracting COVID-19. Some 50 to 50 year olds in Norfolk and Waveney are known to have received initial doses, while others under the age of 50 have already booked appointments. Praising the latest milestone, Vaccine Minister Nadim Zawahi said the UK was leading the way. Vaccines are the best way out of this terrible pandemic and the NHS is doing everything it can to protect those most at risk as quickly as possible, he added. We are on track to offer vaccines to all adults by the end of July and I urge everybody who is eligible to get their jabs to protect yourself and your loved ones. Thus far, almost 25 million adults in the UK have received a first shot while another 1.6 million have been administered their second. In the early stages of the rollout, leading politicians estimated that everyone over 50, frontline health workers and those with serious underlying health conditions would have been offered a jab by, quote, mid-April. And that target looks likely to be met thanks to a surge in vaccine supply over the coming days, 
largely down to a significant shipment of Oxford AstraZeneca doses arriving from the Serum Institute in India. It means the programme is on course to be two weeks ahead of schedule. Now, this, of course, has been thrown slightly into doubt by the news we've had in the last 24 hours, but that's an ever-developing situation. Around 2 million text messages are now being sent to the latest cohort, accompanied by a link directing them to the national booking system. Those who are unable to access the website can call NHS England on 119. Everyone in the top nine priority groups, that's about 30 million people, should be offered a second injection by the middle of July. And this is a maximum of 12 weeks after the first, a policy designed to maximise the number of people getting a vaccine and therefore receiving protection from the disease. The second phase of the rollout is split into three groups, 40 to 49 year olds, 30 to 39 year olds and 18 to 29 year olds. They are due to be offered an initial dose of the vaccine by the end of July. On Wednesday morning, Health Secretary Matt Hancock reassured the public that the Oxford jab is safe following concerns over blood clots. While a definitive link has not yet been established, several European nations have suspended use of the vaccine while they await the results of a further search. Now, good news for the Pavilion Theatre in Goulston as it prepares for a reopening in May. Almost a year after the first COVID-19 lockdown, the Pavilion Theatre in Galston is gearing up to open its doors with a huge lineup of events. Following on from the successful trial of socially distanced performances over Christmas, the team at the Pavilion Theatre in Galston is now preparing for the first performance of Showtime on May the 18th and are promising a show packed full of song, dance and comedy, the perfect tonic to the difficulties of the past year. The entire arts and live events industry has struggled to stay afloat during the pandemic and whilst the pavilion has been lucky to receive support from the Culture Recovery Fund and the Theatres Trust, it has been an extremely difficult year for the team. Stuart Malkovich, Theatre Director, says We are extremely excited about letting people back into the building. I can't recall when there has been a time like this where we haven't been able to let anyone inside for such an extended period. It's an odd way to put it, but the support we've received from the Culture Recovery Fund and the Theatres Trust has enabled us to pay the bills and keep the doors closed, albeit temporarily, rather than face anything more serious. We're just very grateful that we're still here and that we can finally start to plan reopening properly. The Pavilion has also been using the lockdown to carry on with the building upgrades that it had already planned for 2020. The silver lining in the difficulties that the pandemic brought us has meant that we have pushed ahead with the upgrades we had planned when it was safe to get back into the building after the first lockdown, says General Manager Luke Thompson. We have focused on upgrading the toilets and the foyer area with new tiling and carpeting and we have finally installed some new and long-awaited heating and air conditioning systems so our audiences should find themselves much more comfortable when they return. From May the 17th, should the government's lockdown plans go ahead as scheduled, the theatre will be able to open to a limited audience size to achieve social distancing. It has planned a double bill of comedy plays alongside the much-anticipated return of summer showtime. A few weeks after that, the theatre will be able to operate at full capacity from June the 21st and a schedule a full programme of plays, musicals, one-night specials, comedy and pantomimes to celebrate. Whilst the pandemic obviously interrupted the theatre's usual programming schedule for 2020 and into 21, 
the larger renovation plans, including refurbishment of the building, were also put on hold. 2020 was due to be the year we finalised our five-year strategy to completely refurbish and restore this beautiful Edwardian building so that we could celebrate its 125th anniversary in 2026, says charity trustee Alex Youngs. Unfortunately, the pandemic has put us back a year, but we will now spend the next few months getting our plans back on track and we'll announce how we're going to celebrate this milestone anniversary in the autumn. Full details of the theatre's schedule events can be found at PAV Theatre, which is P-A-V-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot com, where you can also buy tickets, make donations to the theatre's restoration funds and follow all the updates on how and when the theatre will reopen. And you can also call the box office on 01493 662 832 and the very best of luck to them too. That's very nearly it for this particular edition of Grapevine. Firstly, though, I've got to give you the answers to Andrew's quiz. Question number one, the answer was colloquially known as the Big V, which was Vitesse's Cafe, one of several around the town. Andrew thinks probably the most known one, but I reckon that may well have been the one in Market Row. Howsomever... Question number two, the answer was Bowers and Bar Electricians. Still going, but offices are now by the town hall. The legendary Chalet Cafe is the answer to question three. Haunt of the Yarmouth, or maybe just Galston, mods. Question number four, the answer was, of course, Woolsey and Woolsey, where music fans used to haunt on a Saturday to listen to the new releases before committing 12 and sixpence for a new LP. And the answer to the last question, question five, was of course the Windmill Theatre, home to many stars over the years, from 60s bands to carry-on stars in summer farces. Oh, you couldn't remember the name of that programme? It was, of course, Sale of the Century. Produced in Norwich. OK, well, that is it from this edition of Grapevine. The recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Arch and Limited and is used with their consent. However... The Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Margaret, and we hope that we can look forward to welcoming you once again for much more of your local news. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, we hope that you keep safe and well, and until next week, it's bye for now. Bye. Bye.